I don't know how to follow up on that one. I'd like to start by reading part of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struck, <coughs> struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I, will, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Father, we join together and pray for our church body. We have lots of people who are recovering from various medical problems. But first of all, we lift up George Ungaman. We ask that you would give him peace, comfort as he lost his wife this week. 52 years of marriage Seems like a long time, but when you lose your wife, that time doesn't seem long enough. And Lord, we thank you for those who have been faithful in remembering, that, remembering him in prayer, sending cards, visiting. And Lord, we thank you for the results of various medical procedures. Think of Ken Simpler and the whole idea of being able to go in and shock the heart so that you can get regular beats back. Seems impossible to even conceive of and probably was 20 years ago. And Lord, we do think of others who are recovering or facing problems. Jack McElvain, Danny Offenbacher, Mindy Hildebrand, who was walking like there. She had nothing done this week. Ralph Williams, who has been facing problems for a while, but always with a attitude of loving the Lord. We think of Juanita Morse, her problems with her 
knees and the rest of her body as age creeps in. Think of Carol Xerxes, who is here with us today. Thanks to her daughter getting her here, but also the skill of the doctors and all that they have done there. And there are many others who are recovering from various illnesses. Father, we also lift up our church body because we are facing some trials. And Lord, we just ask that your will will be done, that our pastor will still be able to preach the word with out any problems that it will be the unadulterated word not the word with that is chosen like so many churches these days are they pick what they want to preach rather than what you have supplied father and father we lift up our country as we are in the year of electing a president and representatives and some senators. Oh, we ask that you would make yourself known to your people and motivate them to get out and vote as you direct them. Vote for those who will be Supporting the things that your word talks about. Supporting life. Supporting freedom of religion so that we can continue to preach the word in this country and around the world. We take it for granted, but it may not always be the case. And Father, we just thank you that you are there and are always willing to hear our Please, and not only willing that you are asking us to come to you. Without you, life would not be worth living. Now, Father, we thank you and we ask that you would bless the word that we are about to hear. And all God's people said, Amen and Hallelujah. It's pretty exciting to see how many people are recovering according to the prayers that we've been praying, even to see Kit walking around without pain. Uh, There are a lot of answers to prayer. Sometimes our prayers are not always uh, with the yes and uh, that we want. Sometimes God answers with a no, and sometimes God says, wait, and uh, you can see a lot of different things, but uh, God does answer prayers. And he is in the midst of doing great things in our, in our hearts and in our souls and in our community. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're looking at the book of Titus today, the book of Titus. Uh, it is a fascinating text. Uh, it is a short book. It has only three chapters. And when you look at the book of Titus, uh, you're, you're going to find out that it's one of the last books that Paul writes. It's towards the end. If you have your bulletin card in front, you'll be able to see that the focus today not only is on missions, but it asks this question, does the church still offer value to millennials? Uh, is the church still relevant? Uh, 
before I read the text, I just want to let you know that this week, uh, down in Mobile, Alabama, the Presbyterian Church had its annual gathering. We call it General Assembly, GA. And uh, we, had, we had almost 1,000 pastors and about 300 ruling elders all come together. And when we meet, it's kind of like a, an interesting kind of dynamic. There's a lot of education that goes on because we have seminars, we have different things. Uh, you get to see the hot buttons and the different topics and the issues and the special things that people have learned and the latest things that they've written about. We also take time during the assembly to review what's going on in the different agencies that we have in the PCA. We have an administrative committee, a discipleship group. We have a mission to the world, which was mentioned. We have mission to North America, which does church planting. We have uh, Ridge Haven. We have a group called uh, RBI, which helps to deal with, um, um, with if you want to donate money or stocks, you can end up working through that agency. In other words, there's lots of different things that bring the whole thing together so we have a healthier denomination. The third thing that we do is we debate. They use this thing called Robert's Rules of Order. And uh, when we get together, you know, you make motions and you do this and you do this. And, and uh, sometimes it's really fun to see the conflict. Uh, when people stand up, point of order, Mr. Moderator, fathers and brothers, or somebody will get up and say, I call for the question. You know, <laughs> they're tired of the debate. It's, it's, there's a measure of entertainment, but it's fascinating to see how our brothers in Christ are thinking. What's important? There were two topics that, were, that caused a lot of stir. One of them has to do with the future role of women in the church. How do we define that and explain it with more clarity? And the other issue, uh, which seemed to be pretty germane from last year, was uh, the 50, 50th anniversary from some of the civil rights things that happened in Selma, Alabama. And we were just down in Mobile, Alabama. So you could see all the connections. And so the civil rights issue was front and center. And uh, the big thing that we're trying to figure out is, is the inclusivity of the PCA, that we're not trying to push people away, and how does that all come together? And they were debating about uh, having to re- repent from things back in the past, in the 70s, uh, all those kind of things. Very, very interesting stuff, and we'll have more reports and more feedback. I just want to be able to share with you that the Church of Jesus Christ is a lot bigger than just this one. And the troubles that are going on, they're not just here, they're not just there, they're everywhere, just like they're going to find in Tokyo. In fact, it might even be more difficult in Tokyo. But when you know what you believe, you still need to to trust God and do it. Now, we're going to be preaching, I'm preaching on a text uh, from first, excuse me, from Titus chapter 1, and it's about a church that was being developed and built on the island of Crete. Uh, which is far out in the middle of the Mediterranean. So as you listen to this text, I want you to be able to know that Paul, who is the missionary, is trying to get a church set up. He's doing church planting, just like Quay. And as they're trying to get things going, you can listen to the words. I'm going to start with verse 5 here, which says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, this is the Word of God. It's infallible, it's inspired in its originals, and I want to now unpack that a little bit more. Let's look at the context from verse 1 all the way down to verse 10. Let us hear God's Word. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, has promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested 
in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Verse four, to Titus, my true child, in common, in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and from the Lord Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer or this, the, uh, the leaders of the church as God's, must be God's stewards and must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicted. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Please keep your Bibles open and let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will illumine this text, that we might understand it better, that we might see the value of your church. Lord, open our eyes up that we might apprehend the same truths that Titus was supposed to learn many years ago. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The value of the church. How valuable is the church to you? You know, when you look around at the statistics, I've been using the one about 39 to 40% that people go to church today. And as I was looking up, the most recent statistics say that it's down to about 20%. That on any given Sunday, if you drive around, only 20% of our population is going to church. One out of five. What's wrong? There used to be a time that nothing was going on on Sundays. That I think they called them blue laws. I can barely remember those days. When you think about it, church is not very valuable in people's lives. Those of you that have a few more gray hairs than I do, uh, you know that the next generation probably doesn't love church as much as you do. Why is that? Why isn't the church cherished and valued? Don't you remember the days, some of you that are older, where, where church was, go to church Sunday school, go to church Sunday church, go to church Sunday night church, and then go to church for prayer meeting on You guys know the drill. Now, I was a preacher's kid. We had to do it all the time. My mom was notoriously late, so we always missed a whole bunch of it, a whole lot of it. But she had eight kids, so maybe that's the case. But I wanted to tell you, as a kid growing up, that was life. Church, 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 and more church. That's not true today anymore. Some of you would not even look at church and say, oh, Sunday... One hour and 15 minutes is too long. Preacher, can't you keep it to an hour? You know, when you start thinking about it, we're all in this new zone of thinking, and I call it postmodernism. And I've been challenged by a young couple who was telling me about that this year, that they said, what's the value of church? What's in it for me? I wanted to unpack that for you a little bit. And some of you hear me use the word postmodern. I want to just make it real simple for you like this. Uh, There is, how do you figure out truth? In the old days, you know, let's go back maybe 50 plus years. 
In the old days, there used to be, if you wanted to find truth, you would find it in the scriptures. And where would you typically find the scriptures being explained? At church. Okay, people used to go to the clergy. They used to go to their denominations or whatever, and they would figure things out. And a lot of times their lives were shaped by that. Hence the blue laws and hence the patterns. That was the pre-modern era. Now, when modernism came in, modernism, in other words, in the pre-modernism, people used to go to Scripture for truth. When modernism came in, some people call liberalism crept in and all that, but the word modern was captured in, in a lot of the zeitgeist mentality. And during that era, people used to not put as much emphasis on Scripture anymore for truth. They used to put the emphasis on science. So if you remember, you would always look and see what's in the latest journal or what's in the latest article, and they would tell you the facts of science. And before long, guess what happened to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3? They were diminished in significance because science trumped Scripture, and a lot of people were believing that you better stick with science. Science is going to be more accurate. And hence, you had the whole transition in the public's education system that creation was dismissed. And you saw this culmination that all of the spirituality stuff that used to be a part of school where you had prayer and Bible reading, they're being taken away and removed. And finally, in 72, you have prayer actually taken out. You see, science didn't leave room for God. And hence, you had the God's not dead or God is dead movement. So the pre-modern was you trusted Scripture for truth, or you at least went there, whether you believed it or not. In the, in the modern era, you had people going to science and looking for what, what the, the wisdom of this world is. Now we've moved beyond that to post-modern. It's after that scientific stuff, because science never satisfied. People are not in a place now where they're saying, well, I've got all the answers I ever needed. I've got statistics for this. I've got all these temperatures. We know that global warming is global warming. You know, they even had to change that to climate change because they couldn't even prove it was warming. The interesting thing is that we've moved beyond the science because now we don't trust the scriptures and we don't trust science. We trust self. We are the determiners of truth. In the postmodern era, everybody has their own truth because everybody gets to choose what they want to be true. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It's true for you. It's your perception. It's your feeling. Now, when you're in this stage and you're looking at church, church doesn't have the same appeal as it did way back here when you were looking for truth. Now... You don't even have to go to science, although science, we sometimes will lean upon it now. Today, we'll borrow from science, but we really make up our own minds. What's good and acceptable? It's not really what God says, and it's not even what science says. It's what we feel is good. That's postmodern. That's where our culture is. Globally, that's where most people in this culture, or in the world are, moving towards. They're saying, we are the determiners of truth. So if we're determining what, what value does a church have, what would you be looking for? Well, is it time? Is it comfort? Is it, is, it, uh, is it because everybody's going there? Is it because I can get better business connections? Is it because the chairs are comfortable? When you start thinking about what it is that makes the church successful, then you start to begin to answer the question why it is that people don't go to church anymore. They're not finding what they're looking for. They're looking for something 
but it's not found at church. They have alternatives now. In fact, if you look on a Sunday morning and you go through the newspaper, you can find a whole lot of other activities going on on Sunday. Many of them look a lot more fun. Many of them involve a lot more fun. Because when you come to church, church has lost its fun. In fact, the word frustration seems to fit pretty good in our culture today, especially in the political realm. It's permeating everybody. We even get frustrated when we have traffic that slows us down. I mean, it's so easy for us to get knocked off of our joy and peace and patience and happiness and to become just like the world because when we're determiners, when we're almost in the place of God, it's really difficult for us to, to find that satisfaction because we realize we can't, we can't fix things. We can't get people out of the hospital no matter how hard we try. We might try this procedure and this procedure, but guess what? We're still broken and we're still flawed and we're still struggling. I often say that the church, in this particular postmodern era, we've, we've, there's three things that we're frustrated with. We're frustrated with the awkwardness the church brings to our friends. You know, if you go to a Bible-believing church and you've got neighbors that don't believe in the Bible-believing stuff, does that make you get along better with them? Or is it a little bit more awkward? Because a lot of them hold to different values. They've already bought in that their truth is, is just as good as your truth. And they get upset with you if you try to cram your truth down their throat. But they don't have any problem telling you that we need to get with it to catch up with the times. Do you see the struggle? The church is not the safe place anymore because it creates tension with our neighbors and friends. Secondly, when you look at the, at the, uh, the church, it, is an, it interferes with our fun. I mean, why did God ruin the weekend by making you come to church on Sunday? A day of rest is cool. We all love that. But wouldn't it be great to stay in bed or to go to the beach? I mean, when you think about it, this just interferes with our fun. And that's what people in the postmodern world want what they want. And church interferes with that. The third thing is that the finances. The church is starting to reach its grubby little hands on your money. And it's not giving you as many options because if you give a tithe or if you give an offering to the church, a lot of times that means you don't have money to do other things. You see, that's why we've perfected it at New Covenant. Uh, you don't get to see any plates at all, do you? You know, you drop it in a box if you want to or if you don't want to. It's really interesting how postmodernism, we're all doing all these adaptations, these dances, because church isn't as appealing as it used to be. You used to come for community. You used to come for family. You used to come when you were hurting because you got help. You used to come for truth. You used to come for correction in righteousness. You used to come and cry. You used to come and be equipped. You used to be sent out. What's going on today is not happening like that in most churches. That's the introduction I want to bring. But the Apostle Paul tells us that the church is valued. And if you look at the particular passage, he actually addresses the same issues that we address today. The island of Crete was a small island. It's only 120 miles by 30 miles. It's out in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it's, it's out there. But when you look at the, 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 uh, the, that particular region, it has a lot of the postmodern thinking in it already, where people determine their own their own ends. So if you want to walk through this with me, there's four points, four S's. This, I want to be able to explain the value of the church by exposing the scarcity of a commodity. Secondly, the value of a church by the seriousness of the symptoms addressed. Thirdly, I want to show you the value of the church 
by the, seasoned requ- the seasoning required of the leaders. And fourthly, I want to show you the value because of the spiritual substance in its portfolio. Now, that's just a great way of just pointing it out, that when I was a real estate appraiser, we used to go and try to figure out what a property was worth. You know, a house or so. I remember starting off in, in high school. Uh, I went out as an, in, as an intern with my boss. And uh, how, how much does this house cost? How, what's its worth? And, of course, he would show me. You check this box, this box. You can do all those things. But it really boiled down to what is somebody worth willing to pay for it? That's what the bank wanted to know. They really didn't care how much it cost you to build it. They just want to know how much somebody will pay in case you have to sell it. So it was the comparative sales analysis. And we have three comps. They have to be pretty close. And that was the master of doing an appraisal. But how do you do the value of a church? The first point I want to talk about is the supply and the demand, the scarcity. You know that something is more valuable if it is what? If it's rare. In Crete, I want you to know that the church was valuable because it was really rare there. There was no church in Crete. On the island. Now, can you imagine a world where there was no church? I don't think I can. But on Crete, there really, I mean, there was religious people. They had their own cults and stuff like that. But on Crete, if you look at the particular verse in verse 12, you're going to find out that the state of affairs for the last 500 years is summed up by this guy named Epimenes. Can't even say his name right, but uh, he is one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. He was he was a contemporary of Aristotle and of Plato uh, on this little island. They were they were over in Greece, but he was on the island of Crete. And this is his quote: "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons." And this testimony is true. This <laughs> that's the culture. In a nutshell, the Apostle Paul tells us, hey, let me tell you what it's like to live on Crete by quoting one of their top guys. Yeah, that was 500 years ago, five centuries, back in the uh, five B, or 500 B.C.s. But when he was dealing with all of these things, this guy was very interesting. He just said it flat out. People do what they want to do. They lie if they want. They're lazy if they want. They eat too much or they're into uh, their stuff too much. He says, this is the way they do it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is all there is. There's a godless society. And if you think about the church, it's very valued there because most people didn't have a clue that there was anything else. When I think about liars, they were lacking honesty. Beastly, they were lacking humanity. They didn't even treat each other fair. They were lazy. They lacked diligence. They've lost the whole concept that there's going to be a day of accounting where one day you'll stand before the Lord and whether you get that commendation, well done, thou good and faithful servant or not. And as gluttons, they were lacking discipline. They were falling prey to addiction. It was not simply food, but other things. Anything that captured their lust. You see, doesn't that describe our culture? Liars, beastly, lazy, and gluttons. Wow. If you read the book, that the whole, uh, in fact, let's go do it. We're going to look through some of the verses in Titus. If you have your Bibles open, chapter 1, verse 16. There was something else that was missing in this culture because the people had those characteristics. Verse 16, he says, They possess to know God, but in their works they deny Him. Their works are abominable, they're disobedient, and they're disqualified. 
So there's not many good works going on. He said there, people act like they're godly or they act like they have a God, but their works don't show up that way. If you look at chapter 2, verse 7, just a couple pages over, a couple verses, he says that in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. And the reason he says to the, uh, and right there he's exhorting the young men, he says, we need good works here because there aren't many good works. If you look at verse 14, same chapter, he says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who will do what? Good works. In other words, if you're starting to catch the picture, there's not many good works going on in Crete. There's not many at all. And the text goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Remind them to be subject to their rulers and authorities to be ready to do the good works. Because... Paul is saying to Titus, hey, one of the things that's really missing in that culture is people don't know what good is. They don't know what goodness is. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, this is a faithful saying that I, would, I want to affirm constantly that those who believe in God should be careful to do what? Good works. Do you, do you get the picture? This is something that's lacking on Crete. And in verse 14, as he wraps up, he says, Let our people also learn to maintain or to keep up the good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. You see, one of the things that you see as a theme going through this whole book as Paul's trying to prepare Titus for this church is that when you have a church, the Christians in the church, they're good. They have goodness. They care for one another. They do the very things that Romans chapter 12 that we just read. They esteem one another. They're patient. They honor. They outdo one another in honor. All those things are there. And they weren't in Crete. Second point is the value of this church in Crete. If you look a little further, you'll see that there are serious symptoms that need to be treated. Serious symptoms. In other words, if you're a doctor and you're looking at somebody and they're coughing and they're trying to get breath, you've got to take care of that serious symptom. It may not be the real issue, but it's the one that you got to take care of first. Some of the symptoms, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see in verse 10, he says that the people there are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially the churched ones or the ones that have some kind of religious background, he says, the circumcision people. Then he says at the end, and after verse 11, he says they must be silenced. He says that there is also these other things that are going on in, on Crete. Families are being upset the whole family is being upset. That means the generations, the young people as well as the old people and the older ones, the grandparents, everybody in the family are being stirred up. They're being frustrated and they're being taught things that shouldn't be taught. And if you look down in verse 15 towards the end, it says, to the pure all things are pure, to the defiled and the unbelieving, it's not so. And he says, because their minds and their consciences are defiled, they possess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And they're detestable and disobedient. Wow. These are the symptoms of a culture. And I want you to know that the church is even more valuable when you look at the seriousness of these things. Value is determined by them. And the sharpness that is proposed to address them. There are two things that he tells Titus to do. If you see it at the beginning, verse 11, and also at the, at the part of verse 13. He says, you must silence them. And secondly, he says, you need to rebuke them sharply. It's almost like these are couplets together. How do you silence somebody? 
if you're, if you're from Muhammad's uh, back in the 611s, you know, when, when the Islam was growing, they used to silence people by taking their tongue out. You'd never speak again. That's not the way that he's trying. That's not, that's not the Christian way of silencing people. The way that the silencing comes in is there's authority that is being given, and he says it needs to be exercised so that the things that shouldn't be taught, the things that shouldn't be said, they are stopped because there's rebuking that takes place, and the rebuking causes the people to speak to stop. It's really kind of interesting. The value of the church, if you take the church away, you're not going to have anybody speaking up saying, stop, and the symptoms are going to go on. And families are going to be stirred and they're going to be frustrated. And you see what's going on in that culture in Crete. The church is valued because it provides a remedy. The third thing that you're going to find out in this particular passage is that you're going to find that the, the value is determined not simply by the seriousness of the, of the symptoms being addressed, but also by the seasoning required of the leadership. He spends a lot of time, I mean, surprisingly, three or four verses, uh, which is paralleling in 1 Timothy 3. He says, if we're going to have a church and we're valuing the idea of a called out people, a covenant community on Crete, we need to have leaders and you can't just have anybody be leaders. If you look at the text, you're going to be able to see that he says, first of all, they have to have some, some, some status. And then he explains a little bit more after that. He says, uh, if you look at the text in verse 5, he says, I want you to appoint leaders, leaders who can bring order. And he says in verse 6, this is the kind of order they're going to bring. They're going to be above approach because they have their family and their faith in order themselves. He says, if you look at those people, you should be able to see how they run their homes and you ought to see how they have their own personal devotions. If you look at, at guys and you're going to find them, they're husband of one wife, they have children that are believers, and they're not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. These guys that you're looking for to lead in the church are people you're going to respect, people that you're not going to, to doubt. They are not caught up in the other sins. They are not just like everybody else in the culture because everybody else in the culture is insubordinate. But these guys subordinate themselves willingly to Scripture. He says, if you get those kind of people, you're going to find that they are, verse 7, these things. And they're not, uh, they're not verse 7, those things, and then verse 8, the things that they are. So if you look at verse 7, he says that if you're going to find leaders that are going to be valued and cherished to have a church that's valued and cherished, you're going to have people who are blameless, people who are not self-willed, people who are not quick-tempered. They're not given to the addiction of wine. They're not given to fight like with violence. They are not given to the addiction of greed. Those are the kind of things that Christians with maturity are going to have. That should be the description for all of us. But he says, especially for the leaders, because the leaders have to say, follow me as I follow Christ. So he says, when you're going to get the church established that's going to have value for this community, it needs to have this kind of leadership. And he said, if they stay away from those bad things, you're going to see the opposite correspondence too. You're going to find that they're hospitable. They actually are nice to people. They're welcoming. They are lovers of what is good. They actually get happy when things are going that, that are positive, that actually are moral and just and upright and pure. Thirdly, they are sober-minded. They think through things. 
They just don't flippantly respond. They are just. They're looking for things to be uh, proper. Just like in Romans 12. Uh, They're holy and they're self-controlled. This is in stark contrast with what's going on in Crete. Where people are liars. Where they're beastly. Where they're uh, gluttons. Where they're not disciplined and insubordinate. But above all, if you look at verse 9, it's not just about their character, which has those things that are not going to be there and the things that are there. You can also find their conduct is shaped by the word of God. And if you look at verse 9, they hang on to the faithful word as they learned it, as it had been taught to them. So that when they take the word in, they're able to turn around and give the word out. That they may be able, by sound doctrine, to do two things. When they have the word of God, what are these guys supposed to do with it in the church? Help me out. They're supposed to handle the word of God so that they can rightly explain the gospel and show the truths. But they're also to do well else, what else with the word of God? If you look, to rebuke those who contradict it. Wow. The value of the church is that people actually are challenged. Stop the wrong things. It's not just here's the right way. It's they get off the wrong path. You see, and as parents or as leaders, we all need to take that to to heart. It's not just being nice. It's calling people to conform to the image of Christ. If you can quote 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's from God and is profitable for doctrine, which is teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, did you notice a couple of those words? The word of God all by itself is good for what? For teaching. In other words, you can learn the things about God, but it's also for correction and for reproof. It is to change us. We can't just stay on the path that we're on and say, isn't that great? The rebuking comes that we would turn from our wicked ways and turn towards God. And that's the value of the church, even in today's culture, is that we don't say, stay here and decide what's right and wrong for yourself, but rather we would come to this culture and say, we rebuke that kind of wrong thinking. Right and wrong is not determined by you. It is determined by him. And he already has revealed it to us. We need to study to show ourselves approved to God. I want to finish up by saying... Uh, The value is determined by the spiritual substance of what's in the portfolio. If you you go to any financial planner, my mom has one now that my dad's died. She's worked with this guy and tried to work out all the details. He knows all all the ins and the outs. She's got a portfolio. It's a little bit of money here, a little there, and this is how you have to borrow from here to make it all work. Assets. Does the church have any assets? Is there anything that's great about this church? And if your mind is going into the physical property here, well, you, that's not where I'm going. It's not about the 2 or $3 million property that's already paid here, which is pretty amazing what God has done to eliminate debt here. That's not the asset that we have because you don't have to have a building to have a church. The church has an asset. It has commodities in it. I call them four jewels that the text tells us. There are four things that you, when you see the beauty of them, it's better than a cubic sarconia because it's not phony. These things are real. And they're right in the first couple verses. And if you take, I'll take you right back to them. If you have your Bibles open in chapter uh, 1, you're going to find that he says in Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here he starts out the four jewels. 
for the sake of faith of God's elect. Second jewel is the knowledge of the truth. The third jewel, which accords to godliness. And the fourth jewel is in hope of eternal life. It's really cool how Paul just starts out for us and says, Titus, these are the things that are to be valued. These are the things that you don't want to miss. These are the things that are worth dying for. Because if you get them, you'll have them forever. The first thing he talks about is faith. The second thing that he talks about, if you look a little bit in there, is what? Is truth. The third thing he mentions is this godliness, which is really another word for sanctification. And the fourth thing that he mentions is hope. So as I try to unpack that for you just a moment, these jewels, the first jewel is the greatest of the jewels. Even though if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or 13 at the end, it says, now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Uh, love is not at the top of the list. The top of the list that Paul says to Titus is people need faith. Because if you go to Hebrews 11, you're going to know that without faith, it's impossible to To please God, there's no hope. There's no knowledge of God if you can't believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of them that seek him. There is no hope for you if you have no faith. And that's why I'm so grateful that faith is not something that you produce. It's not something that you can get because you've done. It's because it's a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through that faith. And that faith is a gift from God. It's not by your performance. It's not by your works that you'd be able to boast. So when you realize that faith is the great thing. And it's the faith of the elect. The elect, as Tim Keller was saying in the highlight message of the General Assembly. He says the elect means that what did you have before you were elect? Why did God pick you? Was it because your hairdo? Was it because your bank account? Was it because your last name? Was it because you were an American? Or was it because you weren't an American? Why did God elect you? And the cool thing is, in 1 Corinthians, where it said there should be no divisions in the church, that's the argument. The reason why we shouldn't have any divisions among us, not even for whether we like Paul, Peter, or Apollos, he says, Get it, forget all that. He says, if you look at it closely, our only boast is in Christ. Because all of us are losers that he saved. There is none of us that come with all the stuff that God would save us. Oh, well, because we know the doctrines, because I got a seminary degree, or because you've got this, or because you got that. None of us have salvation because we were good enough. There was no prerequisites. And when you look at the text, faith is such a jewel. He quickly goes on to say that the other ones that that come there, the truth, the truth is being able to understand the past to the present. You can't rewrite it. It's not open to your negotiation. This is the way it was. Jesus died on the cross. It's true. Read about it in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no argument that stands. But then after he goes through that, he says, okay, from the past to the present, you need to know the truth. But from the present tense, you need to live godliness. You remember those six passages I talked about good works and goodness? You see, if a church is doing the function of a church... All of us will be doing good works that God has before ordained that we should be doing. We'll be changing our culture. We'll be changing our homes. We'll be changing our neighborhoods. We'll be changing the community. We'll be changing the world by sending out people like Wei and I. When you realize what God is doing in, in the present tense, that we would be doing what's good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And then the third thing, or the fourth, thing, fourth jewel is the hope. Because in this life, if you're living on Crete and you have lazy liars and that are gluttonous and beastly and you're living in that community, 
Is life going to be easy? No, it's not going to be easy. He says the hope that you have is that you stay faithful to the end. The hope that you have is that there's something better than whatever Crete has to offer. There's something better than whatever Delaware has to offer. There's something better than Tokyo has to offer. And as the tsunami came in and showed him that your wealth and your prestige and your honor and all those things that they have in in Tokyo, it's gone. We should learn the same lesson that Titus learned from Paul, that the jewels that God puts in his church, they're only ours. I wrap up with this. Epimenides, he was an interesting character. Uh, I told you he lived about in the 5th century B.C. He was the one that, that had that saying for the people of Crete. He also had another inscription attributed to him from Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, I think it's verse seven, or 38, you find that Paul is preaching to the church in Athens. And when they're in Athens, uh, Paul is trying to reach these people who have all these other gods. It's a, it's a, it's a pagan city. And he ends up seeing this one inscription to the unknown God, Epimenides. The story behind that is that 500 years ago, when Plato and Aristotle, they were dealing with a tragedy, almost like a tsunami that came through. People were sick. It's like a plague. And the people of Greece, were, 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 they wanted to get better. So they went to all their pantheon, to all their gods, and they prayed to him, and nothing was getting better. And so they appealed to this guy on Crete, and Crete ends up, this guy comes over to visit them. What an honor to have Epimenides come. And he shows up and he says, hey, you guys, the very fact that you, you are thinking about a God that, that, that has the capabilities of handling this, he says, we ought to do something about it. He says, let's pray and let's sacrifice to him. So he said, let's be novel. He said, let's get some sheep, some dark ones and some light ones. We'll put them up on the hillside. And he says, the ones that lay down, we're going to sacrifice those. Because we're going to say, that's the God who wants those. And it was really weird. A bunch of sheep laid down. And so they took those sheep and they offered them. And within a week, everybody was healed. And so there was this unknown God that brought about healing that 500 years earlier, uh, and all that story unfolds so that God, through the, through the apostle in Acts 17, is able to say, let me declare to you that unknown God, the God who went to the cross, who became the Lamb of God to take away your sins. You see, that's the message, the valuable message that had to come to Crete. And there were a few people in Acts 1 or in Acts chapter 2 that heard Peter preach that message at Pentecost. There were a few that went back, but now they're starting a church and they're bringing Titus over with these jewels, faith, hope, and I would say sanctification and, and if you want to say the, that, that other aspect of truth, all these things. But do you know the unknown God? Let me declare him to you. In John chapter 6, the question that Jesus raised, we have the words of eternal life. Are you going to come and hear them? Are you going to be postmodern? And you're going to say, I'm going to walk away. I don't want them anymore. I'm going to leave. Will you leave also? That was the question that Jesus gave to the disciples. I want to encourage you in this day and age, don't walk away. Don't fall into the postmodern trap. I want you to be able to not trust the truth as far as what you see with your own eyes. Trust the truth in Scripture. This is the value that the church brings. And it helps you from meandering down life, leaning on your own understanding. Or as Judges chapter, the last verse, 
of chapter 21. It said the people did what was right in their own eyes. See, that's what postmodernism does. I want you to do what's right in God's eyes. It's your reasonable duty. Do you know the unknown God? Do you? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that the value of the church would be seen in our communication of our greatest jewel, the gospel. Lord, faith is apprehending this special revelation. It's apprehending that there is a hope for us, a hope not because we're good enough, but a hope because he fulfilled it for us. And he's going to prepare a place for us. And he's the way, the truth, and the life. And his name is is Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will draw us all to be in line with Christ. And I do pray that, that we will all take up the, the calling that Titus had, and that is to make known 